Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Helen, for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles today to discuss the Plan Well Guide. And before we start, if I can get you just to give a little bit of a history of yourself and, uh, and then before we start. Great. Well, sure. Thanks for having me. Um, so I'm a critical care physician and uh, um, researcher, medical researcher, and I guess for 20 so years been studying um, how we improve communication and decision making in the context of serious illness. And that has led me to many collaborations with people working in the palliative end of life space. I'm not a palliative care clinician, I'm a critical care clinician, but I have an appreciation for you know, people dying. They die in an ICU, just like they die in any other setting under conditions of, uh, of palliative care. So both my clinical experience and my research has informed um, what, we, uh, what I've developed in terms of these decision support tools for serious illness. Thank you so much for that. And we'll start with the plan well guide. What were the reasons as to why you initiated that? If you can just speak to that. Sure, again, coming back to my lived experience as a critical care doctor, um, you can appreciate that when patients are critically ill, they're not able to speak for themselves, right? And so 90, 95% of the time we're collaring a family member to represent them, to participate in uh, how, you know, the decisions we make in an ICU, which you know, are life and death decisions. And so uh, imagine being that family member who's already stressed because they have you know, a loved one lying in a bed in a critical state. And then on top of that, um, we burden them with that responsibility of making you know, decisions on behalf of their loved one. Again, life and death decisions. Uh, and frequently you would hear the expression, oh, I don't know what he or she would have wanted. We never talked about it. Um, rarely, but when you did hear it, it was poignant when a family member could say, we talked about this. I know what my mom or dad or whoever would want because this is what they said. And then they would offer some explication of that family member's values and preferences in a way that we could then reason together as to what the right decision was for, for, for their loved one. And so that, that plus my own you know, research interests in this space led me to conclude that you know, we, could, we could alleviate a lot of human suffering if we back these conversations out of critical care and improve the nature of what I then called advanced care planning, people in advance talking about the medical care that they should receive you know, when they're seriously ill. And so that's really what led to the, the aegis or the initial evolution of the concept of plan well guide. Thank you so much for that. And I guess further to that, the importance of you know, planning and, and talking about these critical points in life, like how, you know, the value, how well it's needed for the families to be discussing this. And, and there's substantive research evidence that supports that if you think ahead and plan ahead, that you'll, you as a patient will have a better journey. Um, you're more likely to get what we call goal concordant care or values concordant care. You're more likely to get the medical treatment that's right for you given your particular value set. Um, or said differently, you're less likely to undergo what we call an intensification of care, 
where your care gets escalated unnecessarily or in a way that's not wanted by you or, or your substitute decision makers. And of course, if that happens, that just again adds to suffering, adds to the person suffering who undergoes that intensification of care. And then the family members are witnesses, are observers, you know, to that suffering. And they're left, you know, with a lot of remorse or guilt or even post-traumatic stress disorder six, 12 months later. And so by again leaning into this space and thinking ahead and planning ahead for your future medical care, you'll um, not only do yourself a favor by ensuring that you get the right treatments, but you're, you're giving a gift to your family member, that, particularly that family member who has to step in for you and make clinical decisions in your, on, on your behalf. Thank you for that. And I guess, you know, leading into, I guess, the fact that you created this website for the, the Plan Well Guide. And can you just, you know, give some background as to why you wanted, I guess, to go to a further audience to make sure that people were aware and what they need to do to, to make sure that things are discussed and planned out correctly? Sure. You know, um, as a part of our research program, we would do uh, national uh, surveys to try and define the level of engagement of average Canadians in, what, again, what we call advanced care planning. And we observe it's very low. It's less than 20%. And repeatedly over time, over years, didn't seem to be you know, working much. And so that, that led to me um, taking a curious approach as to the why. Why don't people lean into this space? And one of the more important observations was people thinking that, you know, this is all about planning their death, planning their dying. Uh, and and that, that gets um, strengthened by the way we were framing advanced care planning as, you know, speak up and define what's important to you at the end of life, or the way it gets defined in legal documents where it might say something like, you know, when I am dying or if I am in this persistent vegetative state, these are the treatments that I do want or do not want. And so because this was framed around end of life care and even people in their 80s, you know, who you think, you know, actuarially speaking are sort of, you know, knocking on the door, they would say things to me like, well, you know, I'm not sick enough. I'm still well. Why should I plan for my death yet? And so you know, we are struggling to figure out a better way to communicate this message. And so we've actually changed the way we speak to people about um, planning, advanced planning. And uh, I don't like the word advanced care planning. It has too much, um, too broad and too much connotation with end of life. And so I, I talk about advanced serious illness planning, uh, where we're thinking ahead and planning ahead that if I were to get super sick, end up in an ICU and there have to be decisions made for me about the treatments that I want or don't want, you know, that's what we're talking about here. So even for that 83 year old who says, you know, I, I'm, I'm too well, I don't need to plan my death, particularly with COVID right now, it's super relevant that you plan for the eventuality of becoming seriously ill, whether that's from COVID pneumonia or unfortunately crossing the street at the wrong time, you get hit by a car, Again, for older people, 95% of the time, they're going to be incapacitated when they develop a serious illness. And by serious illness, I mean, you know, there's a risk that you can die, but there's also a risk that you could recover. 
And, and so, you know, framing it around serious illness is, you know, been helpful in that dialogue with the community, with, with practitioners, um, that they realize the sensibility of, yeah, you know what, if I, if I get seriously, I've got to have a plan in place. And it, it kind of moves away from that negative conversation of, I don't want to talk about death and dying. No, that's very true. And with this type of planning that involves the patient, involves the family, should this type of model be incorporated into long-term care as well? Great, great question. Um, can I back up to pre-COVID yep. when we did, um, well, uh, in acute care and primary care and long-term care, we did a series of audits of practice. So we'd go in, we'd talk to patients and we'd look at their records and we would evaluate how congruent the wishes for patients were with respect to this spectrum of care that's available yes. to them, from comfort measures only to full, full escalation or full intensification of care. So that's what I mean when we look at their, you know, their preferences for medical treatment. And okay. in every setting we went into, including long-term care, there would be patients or in long-term care, more likely their proxies saying, you know what? No, 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 we're, we're okay with a palliative approach, maximizing comfort, not necessary to escalate and send to hospital if serious illness developed. But when we go to the medical record and we look for documentation or evidence that that was the game plan, we see a tremendous medical error uh, where, where there's a disconnect or incongruence between what people say to us is most important and consistent with their values and preferences and over here with what the medical record says. So that is this, that was pre-COVID in long-term care in the audits, there was this disconnect and, and we would administer a satisfaction with end of life care instrument or rather as a satisfaction with called the can help survey. Um, uh, I forget what can help stands for, but anyway. Yeah, no <laughs> the care episode or the care journey of these patients and uh, family members in long-term care saying they were very dissatisfied with many of the communication, decision-making, relational aspects of decision-making. This is pre-COVID. Um, and, and so we knew there was a problem with this kind of medical decision-making in long-term care pre-COVID. We then surveyed doctors. And again, I can tell you specifically about doctors in long-term care I can tell you about doctors in acute care and in primary care, because we surveyed all three settings, but the signal was all the same. We asked them the question, why don't you engage your patients or their proxies in this kind of goals of care, use or non-use of life-sustaining treatment kind of conversation? And universally in all the settings, the, the clinicians who have that responsibility would say, well, you know, my patients or their proxies they're not ready for this conversation. They either don't understand enough of the issue, their disease and its prognosis, or the possible medical treatments. And in a way they were saying, although they didn't explicitly state this, they were saying, I don't have enough time and energy to address this. And, and you know, it's, a, it's one of those preventative things. You, we want them to have them in advance. And so they would wait for the crisis to happen when, okay, I have to make, you know, I have to engage in decision-making now. And that's, again, where we see, number one, all the stress of all the stakeholders making crisis decision-makings, crisis life and death decision-makings under conditions of stress, and all the medical error, because it's, it's not the right conversation at the right time. And, and so, you know, how do we back this up over here 
um, pre-crises to have a more comprehensive planning conversation. Well, the physicians are saying my, my patients or their proxies, they're not prepared well enough for that conversation. So that was the, you know, the, the penny that dropped for me that I need to do more to prepare lay people for future serious illness decision-making. And that's what led to the plan well guide was as a preparatory tool to prepare them. So my physician friends and colleagues will have a reduced barrier or more of an inclination to engage them in better decision-making that will reduce error and therefore reduce suffering as a consequence. No, that's great uh, because that those conversations, yes, they're difficult. Maybe it may need to not only involve the physician, but any other support staff that needs to be included part of that discussion as well, right? So I, I'm sorry, sorry, Zero, no. but I'm glad you brought that point up because we um, explicitly explored that in those same surveys that I was talking about that um, the, the, the real, if you, if you think about decision-making, you break it into sort of discrete parts. There's a part where that's involved in information exchange, you know, just knowledge transmission, both ways. Like we, as clinicians, we want to know values and preferences of the person and the person ought to want to know their disease, its prognosis, the medical treatments, the risks and benefits of going to the ICU, CPR, what's that all about? What will happen to me? What will my outcome be? Blah, 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 blah. So those are information exchange, bi-directional, doesn't have to be a physician. It could be a journal article, it could be an online website, could be a nurse, could be a volunteer with a script to follow that explains things to people. In fact, we, we have a seven minute decision aid that a person can watch themselves that will explicate everything you wanna know about CPR. And, and then the next step in decision-making is deliberation. And so that information then goes into this pool of thought and dialogue where the person is deliberating, is this right for me? Is this consistent with my values? Again, they could do that on their own, but a lot of people value having, you know, a facilitator to facilitate that deliberation. It doesn't have to be the physician. It'd be great if it was, um, but you know, a nurse, a social worker, a trained volunteer, or like we try and do on Plan Well Guide, just an online virtual coaching of that deliberation. The final step in decision-making is actually decision-making, or we talk about decisional responsibility. And there we are stressing that the person, either the patient or their proxy, and the physician, it has to be a doctor thing. So that's the only part in decision-making that you know, should be the, the person signing the medical order or the doctor or nurse, nurse practitioner in some settings, perhaps. But that's you know, where they come together to make that decision. So what PlanWell Guide does is tries to shorten the time the physician has to interact with that person because they've been informed and they've gone through their deliberation. Basically, they're prepared now to come into a decisional encounter with a, with a physician and make a treatment decision. And so I very much support the role of other people being involved in the decision-making process, but restricting the role of decision-making to that physician patient interaction in a shared decision-making model. And if I may, the one thing we showed in, one of the things we showed in our randomized control trial of plan well guide versus usual care is the amount of time the physician spent in that interaction was reduced significantly. Um, so, and they anecdotally would say well, it was a much higher quality conversation because people come in with a sense of knowing either what they want or, and, and or what their issues or remaining questions are. And so it becomes a very focused, 
they have the conversation, they make the decision, the order gets written. So physicians are satisfied, they've had a good conversation, they've reduced their time. And of course the patients also express their level of satisfaction and they were more likely to get the medical care that's right for them if they've been through this planning process. It sounds like this guide would be very well adapted for such conditions such as dementia in long-term care where that is very prevalent. Would you not like in terms of making sure that this is part of that discussion? Yeah, again, but in those patients yeah. who are incapacitated, say those patients with dementia, um, you are obviously dealing with a proxy. So it's the proxy's representation of, you know, the person's interests. And, you know, this is why I kind of go out of acute care into primary care, into community care, is because it's better if, 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 if you, uh, like my own, my mother has dementia, but I know because I know my mother and I've been talking to her about this for decades that I know what her wishes were when she was of sound mind and able to express them. And they've been documented in her um, Dear Doctor letter, which is the planning output of Plan Well Guide. And so now she doesn't have capacity to participate in, in most clinical decisions, but we, we know what her wishes were when she had capacity. And so we can represent her in serious illness decision-making with her documented wishes. I'm just going to go back to with the events care planning to just to kind of, I guess the, why it really needs to be discussed and the knowledge and the values are very important in that events care planning. Can you just speak to that just a little bit more? Yeah, and that's part of our educational effort to speak to lay Canadians to help them understand how decisions are made when you're seriously ill. Um, part of our effort to explain this too, that we're not asking you, we're not asking you to sit at your kitchen table right now and take out a form or a booklet or whatever and make healthcare decisions today of what you want to receive in the future. That's not the proper paradigm because you don't know enough and, and it'll, it'll have to be put in context with what disease and serious illness you have. Okay, so that's, that's not what we're asking Canadians to do. What we are asking Canadians to do is to realize that in the future, when they get seriously ill, the doctor is going to want to speak to you. And in a shared decision-making model where they collaborate with physicians to make the decisions that are right for them, what the physician really wants to hear from them are their values and their preferences. So they are central to our, the way we think, the way we care, patient-centered care. We're trying to make decisions that are in the best interest of that person. But in the heat of the moment, in, if they haven't thought about it in advance or if they haven't prepared their proxy in advance, those values don't come out in a way that leads to the right decision. And so let's back this out of the acute crisis. Let's take 20 minutes, if maybe less, maybe more, depending on your level of knowledge of this space and have you go through a process that helps clarify your authentic values and your informed treatment preferences. And you should ask me what I mean by those two words, authentic and informed. But that's, that's an essence where the role of values is in informing clinical decision-making. And so we want you to think about it when you have the luxury of time, when you're well, when you can talk to your proxy who's gonna make decisions for you when you're sick, have that codified in a paper like the Dear Doctor letter um, where it's written down and stored. So it becomes the talking point. It becomes the script, if you will, when either you get seriously and you can still verbalize or again, if your proxy is representing you, they can speak to what your values are because that's foundational to uh, serious illness decision-making. 
And of course, those two points that you brought up in terms of the authentic authenticity of it, if you could just speak to those, I forgot the second one. <laughs> uh, just informed treatment yeah. preferences. Uh, let me uh, explain those ind individually. So um, right now, I may ask a, a patient or a, a proxy of a patient, um, the standard way of eliciting values is sort of an open-ended question. Tell me what's important to you. Tell me what your fears are. Tell me what you're concerned about. And then they say something. And then I'm supposed to infer from that value, that answer, you know, how that connects to my medical treatment for the use or non-use of life-sustaining treatments. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. I'm in an ICU. I got a patient, an older woman who's super sick on life-sustaining treatments. And I'm wondering if this is the right thing for this woman to intensify her final days. And I meet with the daughter. I explain the disease process, the prognosis, the possible outcomes. And I, I'm trying to get from the daughter, what's important to your mom in, in this context? And, my, and she says to me, well, my mom's a fighter. She would want every chance possible to to overcome this. And so typically that's where the conversation would end. And I would say, okay, and then I would make an imputation in my head and I go off to the medical chart and I would say, okay, well, that means we're gonna continue to prescribe life-sustaining treatments and go for survival at all costs. What's missing in that conversation is the trade-off between seeking life at all costs it comes at a cost to quality, to quality of life. Even if you survive, there's going to be a reduction in that quality of life. And a good clinician would have explicated that in that moment, in that conversation. But frequently, because of just that's not, you know, whatever, we're, we're humans, we make mistakes, we don't have time, it's under pressure. Frequently, the explication of that trade-off is not made transparent. And so people are making answers on, uh, making decisions on sort of an incomplete story. We know from our research that if I present someone with what we call values constraining tools that show explicitly the two competing objectives, quality on the one instance, quantity in the other, or another example of this is natural death with no machines, ICU supported machine um, illness journey, you know, and tell me what kind of person you are. Where does your value life philosophy set put you on this scale where you have to pick, you see transparently, you know, what the competing objectives are, and then you pick on a scale, your leaning or your, or your preference. And so trying to make very transparent that competition between competing values. And more to the point, we've innovated and we've taken these constraining value scales and we've, we've flipped them and, and, and created a sort of a, a grid where the scale makes up the X, Y axis and the, the different um, uh, inputs on the scale come together to form a cell. And so if the person takes their response, and this is much better described visually than it is by words, but there's, if you go to my website, Plan Well Guide, you'll find me getting no this with visuals. So it'll yeah. be more transparent what, you, what I mean by this. But the point is we can, in a very transparent way, link the their ratings of their values to possible medical treatments that might be right for them. But where those responses to their values intersect, it suggests that this medical treatment might be right for them. And I say it might be right for them because this gets into my other problem with the way current decision-making is, is that we make assumptions about how um, educated or informed consumers are. 
So a, a very frequent conversation with an older person admitted to hospital who's ill, it might be something like, well, if your heart stops, do you want us to resuscitate you? And um, we, so we treat them as like, you know, it's like, do you want a hamburger with cheese or just straight up no cheese? As if that's all we have to ask is, you know, and, and their preference matters. And that's, that's, you know, so they don't understand anything about the risks or benefits of CPR or the possible outcomes. And yet we just ask them, you know, what do you want us to do? And, and so that, again leads to medical error because we know that because we've surveyed hundreds of patients in hospitals and we know they don't know anything about CPR its risk benefits or possible outcomes and when we sit with them and explain um, the details and we show them that decision aid right we elicit an authentic value and an informed treatment treatment preference it doesn't agree with what their what their order on the medical chart is up to 80% of the time we see medical errors in some hospitals in Canada, when we go through this rich educative process and then we compare it to what's on the chart. So PlanWell Guide is, uh, part of PlanWell Guide is a medical decision aid where we walk people through. This is what it means to be resuscitated. This is what it means to go to the ICU. This is what it means to stay on the medical ward and receive more conservative treatments. This is what it means to receive comfort care only. These are the risks, benefits and possible outcomes of these different buckets of care so that when they meet with the clinician, they are more likely to be able to express their authentic values and their informed treatment preferences versus this, just this idea out there that is ill-informed and not really grounded on their, on their authentic values. So that was a long-winded answer to your question, but it's so important to decision-making and so central to plan well guide. No, that's very important because I, that would be definitely something in long-term care if that could be part of the whole admission package and to be further part of the discussion for that to be going onwards because what you've made, those are some of the same points and a lot of those things aren't talked about until near the very end. And then, as you said, it causes additional stressors for the, whether it's the, um, the advocate or the family member, whoever is there making that final decision, um, then they're, you know, overwhelmed emotionally and everything else like that. So I wanted to, to discuss the collaboration with Caregivers for Change, because back in October of 2020, you were affiliated with them. And how is that helping in terms of furthering that discussion and putting that information out? Well, let me back up just to show the connection a little bit. Um, so I, I mentioned that I've been doing research in the space of communication and decision-making. And one of the things that has evolved in my understanding of seriously ill older persons is how vulnerable they are at how high risk they are for bad things happening to them, medical errors happening, and the essential role of having an advocate whether that be a, a family member, a, a next of kin, or, or a friend, or even a paid you know, advocate present, uh, involved, uh, supervising. They may or may not be this legally appointed substitute decision maker, but even if they're not, even if that person retains decisional capacity, there, there needs to be decisional support that, that, that they have that loved one to bounce ideas off, deliberate, as we talked about, about what's right for them, and then to ensure that the treatment plan actually happens as it, as it could be. So when I saw restrictions being applied to long-term care settings or other settings, I realized, that, oh my gosh, these poor vulnerable people are not only 
suffering from being alone through their illness journey. Uh, but there's likely medical errors happening. And that's not right. That's not what our Canada Health Act states as our God-given rights. Um, not what the Charter of Rights and Freedoms says are our, our rights in terms of security and uh, on high quality healthcare. And so there's a violation of rights being occurring here that's, that causes suffering, not again, not only just from the patient's point of view, but you know, if you've been a family member with a loved one in those settings and you can't access them, you can't see how they're doing, you can't be a part of their care, you can't advocate for them, that causes you considerable stress. So I was a part of a, a, a emerging collaborative or network of academics, uh, practitioners, uh, lay representatives, trying to um, advocate for family caregiving. And COVID presented us with that platform where um, you know, we were, problems were being caused because of those exclusion of family members from care settings. And so that led me to write what was, uh, is known as the Declaration of Family Caregivers' Rights and Responsibilities. And again, central to those rights is that ability to advocate for. And, and part of that is that right to either legal, because legally you are the proxy decision maker. And so to be involved in decision making, but as I indicated, even if, if that person retains capacity or even if somebody else has that capacity as a family member, I wanna be a part of it and support that older person or, or vulnerable, it doesn't have to be an old person, could be a young person, but that vulnerable person in decision making. And so we came together, we made a declaration of rights and responsibilities. We've uh, created a website, caregivers for change. Com. We um, uh, drafted a petition that is open right now. We're collecting signatures. We have almost uh, 3,000 signatures of individuals around the country who are also grieved by what's happening in not just long-term care, but uh, other uh, institutional settings where family members are being excluded. And so we're trying to change the system and, and advocate for uh, the role of family giver being considered essential uh, that we're not just visiting, you know, for social reasons, although that social dimension is super important for the well-being, there's also other health and, and uh, safety reasons for us being there. No, thank you. That's, that's you know, what's, what's needed at this time in this type of a conversation. And currently right now, federally wise, we have Bill C, uh, Bill 7, um, C7 that's being discussed, uh, medically assisted in dying, and how a lot of people are saying that that is impacting in terms of people that are, again, our vulnerable citizens. And then in Ontario, back in December of 2020, we had the passing of the Compassionate Care Act to allow for anyone that wanted to at least to be able to receive palliative care, it should be available. How do you feel that these two, uh, both provincially and federally, um, is actually assisting the dialogue with uh, this type of a discussion and in addition to with plan, the Plan Well Guide? Well, let me, let me start with medical assistance in dying. Um, and I, I wanna say I, I respect that this is a controversial subject. People have strong opinions um, and a sense of what's right and where the policy should go. And I, I actually don't really want to step into that space. Um, and the main reason, as I've explained earlier in this podcast is I'm trying to move out of the end of life space. Uh, I'm trying to get people to just think ahead and plan ahead for serious illness where there's a possibility they could be incapacitated. Yes, they could die as a consequence of their serious illness. 
but yes, they can also recover. And so whatever plans are made under conditions of certainty, you know, when I am dying, I want assistance or when I am dying, I don't want CPR. That kind of language doesn't yep. fit with Plan Well Guide. I get users from Plan Well Guide that email me and say, I wanna, I wanna add to my dear doctor letter that I want made. Well, right now you can't sort of pre-specify that, you know, as a future decision. And even if that changes, I, well, I won't, I won't say that. I, I was going to say, even if that changes, I'm probably not going to, you know, incorporate made into plan well guide just because again, I'm not trying to plan death. I'm trying to plan serious illness. Um, one of the treatment options for serious illness, particularly for older people ought to be good palliative care. And I'm a hundred percent behind advocating for any policy or practice that increases the chances of we as Canadians receiving uh, good palliative care. I got older parents and older in-laws where, you know, it's codified in their dear doctor letters that I just want, you know, I'm 93, I've lived a good life. When my time comes up, I'm ready to punch out, but I want good palliative care. And, and a lot of people, you know, escalate their care uh, and go to hospital or ask for more than they really wanted because they're afraid of suffering. They're afraid of not having adequate pain control, for example. And so if we could reassure Canadians that that is on the table, that we can achieve that, I think that will not only increase the quality of end of life experience, but it'll decrease utilization of resources, uh, wasted resources, because they weren't really wanted in the first place, but because we weren't offering a more conservative pathway, they, they opt up to something that's that involves more healthcare resources. No, thank you for that. That's great. And the Dear Doctor letter that's on your website, yeah. why was this developed and who, and if somebody does use it, who should they um, share that with, especially if they go into long-term care? Should they share that to the physician, to the supportive staff to make sure that's in their care of plan? Yeah, good question. So again, it comes back to the framing of the Plan Well Guide initiative that we're not making treatment decisions today, but we're planning for future decisions. And so I wanted to create a tool that would empower and enable or capacitate a lay person to have a um, balanced or a, a fair or an appropriate or the right, the right conversation with the clinician. You know, there's a power imbalance, right? Everybody would recognize that when you get in front of a educated physician wearing a white coat, you as a lay person, struggle to find your words and don't always say things in the way that we need to hear them to make good decisions or you forget questions or you forget to clarify points. So in the in the light of day when you've got a sound mind and you're not stressed about that clinical encounter, you know, you, you go through this planning exercise and you define. So, so the Dear Doctor letter says something like, Dear Doctor, I've been through this planning exercise. I know the difference between serious illness and the end of life. I'm not planning my end of life. I'm, I'm recording my values and preferences for you to take into consideration when I'm seriously ill. Here are my values. And we use those constraining scales and they can see actually the response to those scales. Here are my treatment preferences. And you can see that grid that I made reference to. And so the connection between the values and the preferences is made transparent. And then there's a space for open-ended text where they can record any outstanding questions or comments or issues that they have. So then it becomes that collaborative tool, that tool that enables them to collaborate better with greater sense of self-efficacy with the physician to get the med medical decision that's right for them. 
and again, in our randomized control trial, we've shown that that's, uh, that is the case. And I, I, although you, yeah, I think the Dear Doctor letter is an essential part of that. Perfect. No, and I'll include that in the show notes to for Caregivers for Change, as well as your website, and of course, specifically the Dear Doctor letter, so people can be able to use that as a resource. And finally, I just wanted to, for you to, you know, if there's something that we did not discuss today, if you wanted to further um, to, to bring that up, I'll, I'll leave that open for you. Yeah, thank you for that opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, there is a, a segment on Plan Well Guide for if you are a resident of long-term care, here's some additional considerations. And so I, Plan Well Guide is really meant for people or their proxies outside of the system you know, in community or primary care. But if you're in long-term care, I believe it applies, but there's a few other considerations. And so there's some text in there for you, that, that, you know, for you to think about. And the principal thing there is, you know, transfer to hospital for when you get seriously ill versus the, the palliative approach where you reside. But there's issues in that and that you need to think through. So I've got some content in there for that subpopulation. I just, like to make reference to perhaps one other tool that may be of interest to your audience, and that is My ICU Guide, um, www.myicuguide.ca. So if you find yourself in ICU, and you're, or more likely you're a, now a, a proxy or a substitute decision maker for someone who's in ICU, there's kind of a different bundle of decisions that need to be made that have more to do with the continuance or the withholding or the withdrawal of life-sustaining technologies. Because if you're in the ICU, likely, you know, you've already escalated care, but that doesn't mean you, there, you can't stop or change. And so the decision-making is a bit different. The, the values and the grids are a bit different, but the con concept is the same. How do I prepare you as a layperson trying to advocate for your loved one who's now critically ill to make the decision that's right for them? So there's a separate tool that doesn't apply to long-term care per se, but if that long-term care resident now is in the ICU, you can check out that resource. Again, we're trying to face lay people and capacitate them to make better decisions for either themselves or their loved ones um, so that they get the medical treatments that are right for them. Thank you so much, Dr. Halen. I really do appreciate your time today for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles and discussing the Plan Well Guide. I think this will be a great resource for a lot of people to be able to use. Thank you again. Thanks for having me.